0: Hi, everyone. It's so good to see you. Um, I nearly got teary during um, This Is Our Father's World when I saw the pictures of the church roll by on the slides. I was like, oh, I mean, fall in uh, Upper Westchester is always beautiful, but seeing the church just um, made my heart pound. And I suspect for you all, um, how much more so since... um, the privilege of gathering together is so sweet and has been <laughs> such a long time since we've been able to do that. Let's pray together and um, let's dig into the psalm. This is your world, Father, and we recognize that and we pray that your word would help us to uh, live as if not only did we recognize that, but we believed it deeply. Um We celebrate your beauty, we celebrate who you are, and we worship with the church around the world, Um, much, if not almost all of which, is worshiping um, at a distance if they can, and worshiping not at all if they can't. So show mercy to our brothers and sisters who feel isolated today because they don't have technology uh, or can't be near people, and then um, help us to honor you and praise you we pray in Christ's name. Uh, Amen. Dick mentioned that uh, we're looking at fear uh, in this series of sermons. And, you know, it's two weeks before the election. And as I've been listening to the candidates and watching or listening to the ads, uh, in part, what I'm struck by is how much they want us to be afraid. That um, the underlying... motivator that they're pulling on is you should be terrified about what my opponent will do and the world that he or she will lead you in, depending on which office they may be um, running for. Now, obviously, this is more difficult to often do in local elections, um, if mostly, and only because we often do not know what's happening in the local elections. They can't afford the advertisements. But certainly by the time you get to the presidential election, what struck me as I was paying attention to them this week and looking at this sermon text was how important it was that they feel we be afraid so that we would be motivated to act and to vote. And a part of me grieved a little, Because while fear is powerful, and that's why they're um, pulling that lever to get us to act. How much more I wish uh, that we were being motivated by something other than fear, or self-interest, or worry, uh, a greater vision. And one of the challenges of a two-party system in a democratic republic like we have is that ultimately what you have to do, what the constitution designed it to do was to play off of fear of the other and our fear of our own losses to motivate us to vote against each other in the hopes that neither party would have long-term supremacy, but would be forced to negotiate and bargain um, sufficiently for a large enough coalition in order to hold the other group at bay. And when we complain about gridlock what we should probably recognize is that's almost what the constitution was designed to create was each party holding the other party back. This is a little different than um, a parliamentary democracy, right? Where one party controls everything. And so um, if you have a majority, you don't need to worry about negotiating quite as much, but here in the United States between a reasonably unrepresentative Senate a mostly representative house an elected president and a lifelong judicial body, the goal was to create deadlock and to create enough fear that we would work against each other. Now, this isn't just a political issue, of course. I'm struck by how everybody really wants us to be afraid. Um, Think about the advertisements that you see or hear on radio, TV, or um, however you get your news now, right? Um, They rely on fear, the fear of smelling bad or of looking bad. The fear of not having a clean enough house. Um, the fear of disease or accident, right? All of those are the primary way that they say, you could avoid this horrific problem. If you would just use our product, there'd be no embarrassment. There would be no shame. There would be no worry. Um, I'm struck by the ways, not just the advertisements and people trying to sell us things or the ways politicians motivate us, um, but how pervasively fear defines our experience of this pandemic, right? There are legitimate fears that we should be worried about. Um, There's our health and the health of the people that we love, which is causing many of us to live in ways that we would never choose otherwise. But, um, right? everybody is socially distancing for a reason, because there's really fear. We live in a season permeated by fear. And so how do we as Christians who want to be an effective witness, live in a season of fear? And I think it's important to recognize that there are legitimate fears and there are constructed fears, and we still need to choose how to negotiate that. And here's where Psalm 27. Um, offers us, I think, a beautifully realistic picture of what it means to live faithfully in a fearful world. Let's look again at, um, at the psalm, particularly let's begin with verses one through three. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I love the fact that the psalm begins with an affirmation of who God is and our confidence in him, right? Because I think we put our fears in place when we remember who God is. Now... um, We put our fears in place when we remember who God is. And that's why I think the psalm begins with an affirmation. God is the light in our darkness. God is our stronghold when we're confronted by enemies. He is what we need when the world seems dark and unsafe. And the psalmist rests um, in that place at the very beginning to orient his way through this prayer and to orient his way through his life. And I think what he's suggesting, right, is if God is our light in the moments of darkness, right, because what fear does, it, it just dims everything. The beauty and the brightness, the laughter and the love that should normally permeate our lives as people who follow the Lord get snuffed out when we're afraid. And those of us who've lived in seasons of sustained fear, and I suspect potentially a little bit of this pandemic, especially in the early months when we were so uncertain and so unaware, um, some of the joy in life just uh, got snuffed out, didn't it? And it was that long-term worry, the low-level worry that has caused um, doctors to note in multiple studies, now none of us or very few of us are sleeping as well or as soundly as we should. We wake up tired because of the low-level fear that we have. Um, I'm so glad that uh, Claire is experiencing your support over at Wellesley because the CDC just announced in a study released three weeks ago, I think that um, 25% of people between the ages of 18 and 22 college students um, have considered suicide in the last 30 days. And the rate of depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation is up by almost 30 to 40% compared to just a year ago, right? The world begins to shrink it gets darker and more tense. And so the psalmist begins, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold in life. That he's everything that we need in those moments. So if that's true, then we shouldn't need to be faithful. And that's where he says in verses two and three, though, every, though the wicked advance against me, though enemies um, attempt to devour me or an alternative is to slander me, I will not be afraid though an army besiege me, so it's not just an individual attacking, maybe it's a mass of people, my heart will not be afraid, the war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Um, if God grounds us, then we don't necessarily need to be afraid. The challenge I think for most of us, and why I think David starts that way in the psalm, is it's easy to forget that. In part because of course, it's difficult to see God. And unless we, And when we don't turn to God in the midst of fear, we'll turn to something else to save us from what we're afraid of, right? We see that all the time. Um, When your hope isn't in God, you put your hope in something else. And the danger of that, I think, is that whatever you put your hope in becomes an idol to you. If you don't remember that God will save you, you will inevitably choose to believe that something else will. And when you choose to believe that something else will save you, whatever you choose to believe in has become an idol to you. What will save you? What will save you your health, your family, your community, or our country? Unless it's God, the thing that you name will be an idol to you. Michael Ware um, is a Christian writer and thinker. He uh, worked in the... uh, Obama White House is one of the youngest people ever hired by the White House uh, to work in the faith outreach department. And after multiple years in uh, the White House, he left and has spent the last four or five years of his life trying to help Christians think more Christianly about politics. And one of the things that he said is this, um, one of the reasons politics is as bad as it is, and I trust no matter what party you affiliate with, you agree the state of the body politic and the way we conduct politics in the United States is badly broken with its tribalism, with its polarization, with its demonization and demagoguery. And he said, the reason I think it's gone so bad is that we've made politics the ultimate way we think we can solve our nation's problems and save ourselves. And he says, politics is a necessary and important tool. Let's not diminish it Let's not think poorly of it. But as soon as we think that politics can save us, as soon as we think a politician or their policies or their platforms can save us individually or can save our communities or can save our country, then we've elevated a tool into an idol. Politics cannot be the ultimate thing. And when it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And as soon as we start to worship an idol, and we all know this from what we know about idolatry in the old Testament, there seems to be some efficacy. It seems to do some of the things that we want. And so we offer sacrifices to it in order to appease it in order to get a little bit more from it. Right. That's how idolatry works. Andy Crouch talks about this beautifully in his book, um, playing God. And he says the challenge with idolatry is while it seems to work at the beginning, I offer Uh, you know, a little bit of fruit and vegetables to this idol and I get rain. And then when the rain doesn't come, when it doesn't do what it ultimately cannot do, we offer it more costly sacrifices. Okay. Maybe the fruit wasn't enough. Maybe I will offer it a small animal. Okay. It doesn't like the small animal. Maybe I need to offer it more. And that's why often it ends up with human sacrifice, right? Because the ultimate thing we can offer is another person. And you can see that play out in all sorts of idolatries. Can't you? Um, Whether it's the idolatries that occur in addiction, when it starts out with very small sacrifices. I just need a little time to do this. Maybe I won't be totally focused in this one moment until if you've ever watched an addiction completely consume someone's life, they're sacrificing everything, family, family friendships, jobs, integrity. We watch that happen, I think, when we pursue political power as an idol, right? It's a trope that you see in every movie and book and theater piece about politics. Somebody starts out with great ideals, but maybe this small compromise just to get across this really important pieces of legislation until piece by piece, eventually they give up their integrity and their personhood and their future to feed the monster. And Michael says one of the challenges of believing that politics, politicians, parties, or platforms will save us is that we make the political party or the politician or that platform an idol. And we start to worship at it, and it demands more and more uh, as we seek to try to get to what we want. As I've watched the last six or seven or eight or 12 years of politics, I think. He has an insight there. Some of us, of course, aren't um, super invested in politics, as high stakes as they can feel for others of us. Um, other idols can consume us easily as well, can't they? Um, for many of us, the fears that we have about where our security will come from and what will protect us uh, is just, do I have enough money? And, right? You all live in Westchester you can look down the valley into Manhattan and see that played out in multiple ways and you can see among your neighbors i suspect the ways that that idol consumes our attention consumes our passion and demands increasing sacrifices in order to be appeased and that's why i suspect we we always think if i just had a little bit more i would feel more secure And while that may be true, um, all the studies seem to show at some point, an increasing amount of money doesn't actually change happiness or security. But weirdly, the people who achieve that level always think they're in the middle class and need just a little bit more. We've all watched that happen with people who are single, that the idea that there's a partner, who will meet me in my need for security and love and acceptance and belonging. And unless they're healthy, we've all also watched, I suspect, friends or family, neighbors, and people we know sacrifice a great deal in the quest to find a partner, often settling for far too little and hoping for far too much. One of the challenges of fear is that it leads us to idolatry, because we decide that something will save us and protect us from that fear. And therefore, that's why David begins the psalm, I think. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Because when you're grounded on God, you put aside the other idols, um, you're actually in the presence of someone who can save you, and therefore you don't need to be afraid. Um, And when we're grounded in God, we trust that we'll be safe because of who he is, right? It's his character. It's his love and his justice and his mercy and his sovereignty and his wisdom that ground us. And that's why I think the next verse, in verses four through six, David says, um, I want to be in God's presence. If the Lord is going to be the one who saves me from the things that I fear, then I need to be in his presence. Look again at how he responds to this realization of where his security will be. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Why does David want to spend his entire life at the temple? Right? Some of us have sung that worship song um, before about wanting to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. Um, I think it's because David realizes we need constant reminders of who God is to know that we're safe. Because we often forget. Because everything in the world, all the advertising, all of the politicians want us, um, we live in an idol-filled world, at least as pagan, as ancient Cana, Greece, or Rome. They just hide themselves better. And they all promise us like those idols did. If you worship me, you'll be safe. And the challenge is they're all tangible and visible to us. They call to us every moment we're on social media. They sing to us every time we watch the TV or listen to the radio. They surround us in our homes with their reassurances. And that's why David says, the one place I need to be is in the Lord's presence. Because unless I'm there, I will forget. I will worship the wrong things. That's why David wants to spend his time in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And, it's a, and I think that metaphors he chooses remind us that he's not thinking about a place, but a person, right? He talks about the house of the Lord, and he talks about the temple, um, and his sacred tent, and being a rock what we need to remember, um, I think is that often we think of a temple as a place, but if you really believe the temple was what it was, then the temple wasn't just a place where an idol was held. It was the place where God manifested and made himself known, right? Any of the gods. So when you walked into, when you walk into a temple, a pagan temple, you don't believe that you're worshiping that piece of stone. What you believe is that in that stone, the, um, That divine being actually was made present in that space. When the Israelites went to the temple, they didn't think they were worshiping at an empty altar or that the Holy of Holies was empty. They believed deeply and thoroughly that the Lord himself dwelled in the Holy of Holies, that it was his footstool and he was making his presence known. And David talks about the house of the Lord and his temple and then the sacred tent. He's reminding people of the tabernacle which was still at use at the time David lived, right? That that was where the glory of the Lord shone. You could see God himself manifesting there. And David says, I need to be with the Lord to be reminded constantly not to worship the idols that surround me. I need to be the Lord constantly to find my security there so I can let go of the fear. Practically, of course, most of us can't live there all the time. Um, And I don't know about you, but just minutes after finishing my daily quiet time, I can be completely secular and pagan, having no recollection that I had just read the scriptures. I don't know about you, but as much as I enjoy worshiping with you all, In the days when I worshiped with you all and then would finish, we would have coffee or tea, and then I would hustle my family out the door. I may have gotten as far as the Taconic Parkway before my world was consumed with driving and not crashing into the other Sunday travelers. And by the time I hit the Bronx, most of my sanctification was quickly leaking out of my soul. And I was just a driver in New York City. For most of us, I suspect, the difficulty is how do we remember that we are constantly in the Lord's presence? I think that's where, for most of us, it's the why the spiritual disciplines have become so crucial. At the church I attended in New York, New Life Fellowship, one of the strong encouragements that we often made from the pulpit was, um, maybe we should learn to pray the hours. And if you're not familiar with that, it's the monastic discipline of multiple times a day, pausing just to pray. It needn't be long, um, given that my church was in New York City, they said, couldn't you just take two to five minutes when you wake at lunch, before you eat, sometime before dinner, and maybe before you go to bed, to just pause silently in the Lord's presence to pray the Lord's prayer and join yourself with people across the continents and across the ages who have prayed that just to remind yourself of core truths about who God is. So thank you so much um, uh, for the uh, family for reading and reciting the Lord's prayer for us today, right? Because there's something when we say, okay, who do I pray to? It's our Father who is in heaven, whose name I want to be glorified, whose kingdom I long to come, and whose will I long to see done in my own life on earth as it is in heaven, in our country as it is in heaven. And then we remind ourselves at that moment, what are my fears? Give us today our daily bread. I don't need to fear for what I need today. Right? Forgive me my sins. And help me forgive others. Lead me not into temptation, Lord, but delivery from evil, right? Slowly, the Lord's prayer begins to lead us from the fears that we start with into the God's presence, across the brokenness of our world, which can make us fearful. And we pray that the kingdom come to the daily needs that we experience, to our own worries and fears until we pray, right, um, at the very end. For the glory and the honor and the power of yours forever and ever. Amen. Um, It may be, we need visual reminders to provoke us. When I was a associate at the corporate law firm I worked at here in Chicago before I moved to New York, um, it was an environment filled with fear. Um, Especially if you're a young associate at a corporate firm, um, you're terrified that your work product will be found out to be wrong. You're terrified of the partners who are grading your every move. You're terrified about whether you will keep your job. And so on my screensaver, um, I thought I need a visual reminder, uh, but um, it needed to be a personal reminder rather than at that point for me, it, I was not thinking much about witness and so I remembered um, what uh, Johann Sebastian Bach used to write at the beginning and end of his manuscripts I've been told, um, he would put a uh, D G, which meant solo deo gloria right Uh, only for the glory of God. And so I put SDG and just had it scroll past my screensaver, no picture, um, because I I didn't need the picture. It just reminded me whenever I stopped working, when I came back to my computer to work on the next thing, there would be scrolling this little three-letter word, three letters on the screen, SDG, SDG. And it was just a reminder, take a moment, Greg. Everything you do here is for the glory of God. It's not to please the partner. It's not about your economic security and paying your loans. This is about God and my blood pressure would drop ever so slightly. What do you need to do in order to continually remind yourself that God is there because the other idols in our world are loud, they're visible, they're omnipresent to us. We let them into our homes every time we turn on the media, and we're exposed to them every time we walk in a grocery store. What disciplines do you need to armor yourself against that, to remind yourself of who God is? Having said that, one of the reasons I think the Psalms are so fantastic is where it goes to next. Because if it had stopped there, it would be a worship chorus, right? Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me at his tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. That's where the worship choruses tend to end, and the Psalm doesn't. And this is why I love the Psalms. Because um, when we're focused on God, our fears can be expressed in both senses, spoken, and then I think released. Because David goes, suddenly, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face To your face, Lord. I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in your anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. right? What's amazing to me at that moment is while David is suddenly going, I know who the Lord is. I just want to be with him. Suddenly fear takes over again. My heart says to seek you, but what happens if you will not be found? My heart says, seek your face. I'll seek you. But what happens if you turn your face away from me? Um, I'm grateful David expresses his anxieties and the return to fear at this moment. I think this is why, honestly, we can pray the Psalms because they're so honest and so real. Eugene Peterson used to say, if the Bible is God's word to humanity, then the Psalms are unique in that they're humanity's words back to God. And I love the fact that David starts out with confidence about who the Lord is. And by the middle of the Psalm, he's terrified again. You are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid of? But what happens if I can't find you? What happens if I won't, you won't look at me? I will seek your face. Don't hide your face from me, right? In verses 8 and 9, David is captured by fear again. And if you've ever been fearful, you know exactly what that's like, right? You remember that dynamic. You're terrified. You choose to pray and you have a moment of confidence. And then suddenly you're terrified again. I can go do this in the name of the Lord. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Right? And that a back and forth, that oscillation between confidence and fear is exactly what you see happening in David's life right now. And I love the fact that that's in the psalm because it reminds me, having, given my, having found confidence in God one time does not mean that I will not need to intentionally choose to do so again. Some of us think of that as an act of faithlessness or doubt, right? Why am I doubting? I've already prayed about this. But what this psalm shows us is that it's perfectly human and normal to get caught up in fear again. It's not a lack of faith. It's the experience of being human. And for David, it seems he's suddenly aware, I wonder a little bit of his sin at that point, right? Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my savior. He's suddenly thinking, You are my light and my salvation, but what happens if I'm not worthy? What happens if I'm not good enough, holy enough, if I've not led a life pleasing enough to you? He's suddenly aware of his sin and our unworthiness of God's help. But then in verse 10, he flips again. And he says, though my father and my mother may forsake me, which any parent knows is impossible. Even in the most extreme circumstances where we may choose to help have healthy boundaries from a troubled child, we will never emotionally or spiritually forsake them. And the parents who do, we all recognize something wrong has happened. But David says, even though my mother and father may forsake me, the Lord will receive me. What happens there? I wonder if just for a moment, the evil one had created some false guilt or had leveled an accusation against David that he had to struggle with. And the beautiful thing about David at that point is while he struggles with it, he immediately turns and said, actually, what I know is true about the Lord is this. No matter how great my sin, no matter how great my faults, no matter how deep my failures, the Lord will never forsake me. He will always receive me as I go to him in confession and repentance. And then David says in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, Teach me your ways, Lord. Lead me in the straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. David turns and says, you know what? I know who the Lord is. You will never forsake me. So teach me your ways. Lead me in straight paths. Because of my oppressors. I think he moves from worship to God's ways in part because by doing the things that God commands, um, by consistently pursuing the Lord's ways, we actually begin the process of habitually confronting our fears and moving to faith. I remember a season in my life when I first moved to New York City. Um, I had been asked to lead the InterVarsity Fellowships in New York and New Jersey. And it was a moment of pretty high stress and terror for me. Um, Jen and I had been married about a year, and we were dislocated from everybody that we knew and all of our friendship networks, which um, is a difficult thing in the first year, in the beginning of your second year of marriage, right? You need family and support to make it through. I walked into a region that had been without a leader for almost three or four years. Uh, People were demoralized. The leadership team um, loved each other, but... were at odds and did not resolve it. <clears throat> and there were um, massive financial deficits that I was suddenly responsible for. And uh, the terror of that was high enough that I had to figure out a way to respond. And one of the ways I chose to respond was by the spiritual discipline of breath prayer. I suspect you're familiar with it. I know I've mentioned it in the past. I suspect others have taught about it. But it's a simple uh, type of prayer that uh, has taught, particularly at the Eastern Orthodox Church, where with every inhalation, you remind yourself of one of God's attributes. And with your exhalation, you express your need. And so the classic breath prayer is with your inhalation, um, Jesus, Son of God. And then with your exhalation, have mercy on me, a sinner. And... The practice of that prayer is in your quiet times, in that two or three moments of silence when you're trying to remember God's presence. You just remember with every inhalation, Jesus, Son of God, or Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on me, Uh, sinner. And part of what happens is as you begin to do that, you begin to find yourself praying as you're breathing. I learned the practice primarily through a friend of mine, Roger Anderson. Roger, um, who Sam knows, uh, is a long-term leader in intervarsity and has practiced breath prayer for many years. And about 20 years ago, Roger was driving on, uh, in Wisconsin on some very snowy highways when his car um, hit, I think, um, hit some ice, uh, went off the road and flipped over multiple times. Um, thankfully, uh, beh- right behind Roger happened happened to be um, two cars, one of which was carrying an EMT and another one which was carrying a nurse. And they pulled over immediately, called the ambulance, called the fire department, and were on the scene. But Roger says he was unaware of all of that. His first awareness after they um, tore open his cars with the jaws of life to extract him was he said two things came to me almost immediately. One, I was incredibly um, profound pain. He had multiple broken bones, um, uh, damaged organs. And he said, the next thing I was aware of was I was praying because he had prayed breath prayer so long that as soon as he said, as soon as I was aware I was breathing, he was suddenly aware that he was praying. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he said, um, later the um, EMT who he got to meet, as well as the fire department remarked on how calm he was. And he said, well, the second thing I was aware of beside that I was in deep pain was that I could breathe. And as soon as I could breathe, I knew suddenly I was praying, right? There was something about being led in the ways of the Lord, which so habituated Roger in moments of fear and anxiety to turn to the Lord that almost by habit, by instinct, by reflex, it became his desired response. I know for me, when I was leading New York and New Jersey those years, once a month, they would send you the financial statement of how things were going in the region. And I would see the email from um, the woman who sent it was named Beth Kotner, And so I would see her name in the email and there'd be a moment of terror. And the great thing about breath prayer is, right, when you, in a moment of terror, our first response is to gasp, right? You're holding your breath. And the beauty of breath prayer for me at that moment was as soon as I took that first gasp, I realized I could be praying because the breath prayer I adopted for that two or three year period was Jehovah Jireh of my provider. Your grace will be sufficient for me. I have to admit, I don't enjoy the chorus. For those of us old enough to remember that chorus, it's a little bit of an earworm, but those words became precious to me. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, your grace will be sufficient for me. Every time I saw that email, oh wait, I'm praying. I remember crossing the street in midtown Manhattan and I was almost hit by a car. Oh wait, I'm praying. In every moment of fear, I don't need to worship an idol. I could be praying right now. I wonder what are the ways of the Lord that could habituate us to turn to him in moments of fear. So that we move away from fearless from fear and the idolatry that it leads us to into faith in the living God. And David moves there. At the end I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, most of our hope, I know, rests on God's eventual return and restoration of his kingdom when all things are made new. And that's right. But David is asking for more in the land of the living before eternity begins, before your kingdom fully comes. I, he says, will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. I will see the Lord himself in his beauty and his holiness, his wisdom and his power. I will see his goodness manifest in my life, no matter how bad the situation is around me. I will not lose fear. I will not lose heart. When we're grounded in this kind of experience, what I appreciate about David is he can remember past moments of fear, and it seems as if right now in verse 11 And 12, he's facing people who are actively attacking him at this moment, people slandering him and wishing ill against him. He can say, I'm terrified, and I remember who the Lord is. So, brothers and sisters, we're headed into the final two weeks of our national election process. It's occupying the airwaves. It's occupying a lot of our brain space. I encourage you, do not let it occupy your soul. They will raise fears in your life. They must because they know fear is the most powerful motivator to get people to act. The newspapers and media will accentuate and amplify those fears as they analyze and prognosticate. And if you turn away from that, you will be surrounded by all sorts of smaller mundane fears. Who would have ever thought a pandemic would feel like a smaller fear at that moment? Whether, but something pandemic sized or just walking through a grocery aisle, worrying about whether we will smell right, eat tasty enough or have the things that we need. Um, But ultimately I think Your impulse as a church every Friday to turn to prayer is crucial and essential because ultimately, we should approach these things with prayer and fasting and the ways of the Lord. Elections won't save us. God will. Elections will not fix what is wrong in our country. They may mitigate it or they may make it worse. But ultimately, the repentance and revival that we long for will only come about because God acts not because a particular person is in the office or is not in the office. And so drawing together in prayer on Fridays may be the most patriotic as well as the most faithful thing that we could do to ask that the Lord would come, to ask that his kingdom would come, to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so like David, then when we do that, we reorient ourselves. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Of whom shall we be afraid? Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray you would be with my brothers and sisters at Community Bible Church as they work and witness and worship there in Westchester. Um, In this season of fear, I pray you would cause their eyes to be lifted up so that they see you in your glory and holiness, your power, your love, and your sovereignty. And in that moment, would they turn from their fears and the idols that they want to empower and would they turn to you? And in that moment, somehow in that peace, would they have hope to share to their neighbors Would they have a word to share with coworkers and friends? Would people not say, you seem completely oblivious to what's going on, but you seem acutely aware of what's going on and still have peace? What is the cause of that? And why are you not agitated and anxious? And then would you give us words to say something like, I see how bad it is. I'm not denying it, but I believe God is at work and that God is good. And with that, then begin a process of conversation so we would honor and worship you, not just here on Sunday, but in our everyday interaction with the people that we see and know. Amen.